Chapter One of the Magnificent Ambersons. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Magnificent Ambersons by Booth Tarkington. Chapter One. Major Amberson had made a fortune in eighteen seventy three when other people were losing fortunes, and the magnificence of the Ambersons began then. Magnificence, like the size of a fortune, is always comparative, as even magnificent Lorenzo may now perceive, if he has happened to haunt New York in 1916. And the Ambersons were magnificent in their day and place. Their splendor lasted throughout all the years that saw their midland town spread and darken into a city, but reached its topmost during the period when every prosperous family with children kept a Newfoundland dog. In that town, in those days, all the women wore silk or velvet, and they knew all the other women who wore silk or velvet, and when there was a new purchase of sealskin, sick people were got to windows to see it go by. Trotters were out, in the winter afternoons, racing light sleighs on National Avenue and Tennessee Street. Everybody recognized both the trotters and the drivers, and again knew them as well on summer evenings, when slim buggies whizzed by in renewals of the snow-time rivalry. For that matter, everybody knew everybody else's family horse and carriage, could identify such a silhouette half a mile down the street, and thereby was sure who was going to market, or to a reception, or coming home from the office or store to noon dinner or evening supper. During the earlier years of this period, elegance of personal appearance was believed to rest more upon the texture of garments than upon their shaping. A silk dress needed no remodeling when it was a year or so old it remained distinguished by merely remaining silk. Old men and governors wore broadcloth, full dress was broadcloth with doeskin trousers, and there were seen men of all ages to whom a hat meant only that rigid, tall, silk thing known to impudence as a stovepipe. In town and country these men would wear no other hat, and without self-consciousness they went rowing in such hats. Shifting fashions of shape replaced aristocracy of texture. Dressmakers, shoemakers, hatmakers, and tailors, increasing in cunning and in power, found means to make new clothes old. The long contagion of the Derby hat arrived. One season the crown of this hat would be a bucket, the next it would be a spoon. Every house still kept its bootjack, but high-topped boots gave way to shoes and congress gaiters and these were played through fashions that shaped them now with toes like box-ends, and now with toes like the prows of racing-shells. Trousers with a crease were considered plebeian. The crease proved that the garment had lain upon a shelf, and hence was ready-made. These betraying trousers were called hand-me-downs, in allusion to the shelf. In the early eighties, while bangs and bustles were having their way with women, that variation of dandy known as the dude was invented. He wore trousers as tight as stockings, dagger-pointed shoes, a spoon derby, a single-breasted coat called a Chesterfield with short flaring skirts, a torturing cylindrical collar, laundered to a polish and three inches high, while his other neck-gear might be a heavy puffed cravat or a tiny bow fit for a doll's braids. With evening dress he wore a tan overcoat so short that his black coat-tails hung visible five inches below the overcoat. But after a season or two he lengthened his overcoat till it touched his heels, and he passed out of his tight trousers into trousers like great bags. Then presently he was seen no more, though the word that had been coined for him remained in the vocabularies of the impertinent. 
It was a hairier day than this. Beards were to the wearer's fancy, and things as strange as the Kaiserliche boar tusk moustache were commonplace. Sideburns found nourishment upon childlike profiles. Great dundreary whiskers blew like tippets over young shoulders. Moustaches were trained as lambrequins over forgotten mouths, and it was possible for a senator of the United States to wear a mist of white whisker upon his throat only, not a newspaper in the land finding the ornament distinguished enough to warrant a lampoon. Surely no more is needed to prove that so short a time ago we were living in another age. At the beginning of the Ambersons' great period most of the houses of the Midland town were of a pleasant architecture. They lacked style, but also lacked pretentiousness, and whatever does not pretend at all has style enough. They stood in commodious yards, well shaded by left-over forest trees, elm and walnut and beech, with here and there a line of tall sycamores, where the land had been made by filling bayous from the creek. The house of a prominent resident facing Military Square, or National Avenue, or Tennessee Street, was built of brick upon a stone foundation or of wood upon a brick foundation. Usually it had a front porch and a back porch, often a side porch too. There was a front hall, there was a side hall, and sometimes a back hall. From the front hall opened three rooms, the parlor, the sitting-room, and the library. And the library could show warrant to its title. For some reason these people bought books. Commonly the family sat more in the library than in the sitting-room, while callers, when they came formally, were kept to the parlour, a place of formidable polish and discomfort. The upholstery of the library furniture was a little shabby, but the hostel chairs and sofa of the parlour always looked new. For all the wear and tear they got, they should have lasted a thousand years. Upstairs were the bedrooms, mother and father's room, the largest, a smaller room for one or two sons, another for one or two daughters, each of these rooms containing a double bed, a washstand, a bureau, a wardrobe, a little table, a rocking-chair, and often a chair or two that had been slightly damaged downstairs, but not enough to justify either the expensive repair or decisive abandonment in the attic. And there was always a spare room for visitors, where the sewing-machine usually was kept. And during the seventies there developed an appreciation of the necessity for a bathroom. Therefore the architects placed bathrooms in the new houses, and the older houses tore out a cupboard or two, set up a boiler beside the kitchen stove, and sought a new godliness, each with its own bathroom. The great American plumber joke, that many-branched evergreen, was planted at this time. At the rear of the house, upstairs, was a bleak little chamber called the girls' room, and in the stable there was another bedroom adjoining the hayloft, and called the hired man's room. House and stable cost seven or eight thousand dollars to build, and people with that much money to invest in such comforts were classified as the rich. They paid the inhabitant of the girls' room two dollars a week, and in the latter part of this period two dollars and a half, and finally three dollars a week. She was Irish ordinarily, or German, or it might be Scandinavian, but never native to the land, unless she happened to be a person of color. The man or youth who lived in the stable had like wages, and sometimes he too was lately a steerage voyager, but more oftener he was colored. After sunrise, on pleasant mornings, the alleys behind the stables were gay. Laughter and shouting went up and down their dusty lengths, with a lively accompaniment of curry-combs knocking against back fences and stable walls, for the darkies loved to curry their horses in the alley. Darkies always prefer to gossip in shouts instead of whispers, and they feel that profanity, unless it be vociferous, is almost worthless. 
Horrible phrases were caught by early rising children, and carried to older people for definition, sometimes at inopportune moments, while less investigative children would often merely repeat the phrases in some subsequent flurry of agitation, and yet bring about consequences so emphatic as to be recalled with ease in middle life. They have passed, those darky hired men of the Midland town, and the introspective horses they curried and brushed and whacked and amiably cursed. Those good old horses switch their tails at flies no more. For all their seeming permanence they might as well have been buffaloes, or the buffalo lap-robes that grew bald in patches and used to slide from the careless driver's knees and hang unconcerned halfway to the ground. The stables have been transformed into other likenesses, or swept away, like the woodsheds where were kept the stove-wood and the kindling that the girl and the hired man always quarrelled over, who should fetch it. Horse and stable and woodshed, and the whole tribe of the hired man, all are gone. They went quickly, yet so silently, that we whom they served have not yet really noticed that they have vanished. So with other vanishings. There were the little bunty street-cars on the long, single track that went its troubled way among the cobblestones. At the rear door of the car there was no platform, but a step where passengers clung in wet clumps when the weather was bad and the car crowded. The patrons, if not too absent-minded, put their fares into a slot, and no conductor paced the heaving floor, but the driver would rap remindingly with his elbow upon the glass of the door to his little open platform if the nickels and the passengers did not appear to coincide in number. A lone mule drew the car, and sometimes drew it off the track, when the passengers would get out and push it on again. They really owed it courtesies like this, for the car was genially accommodating. A lady could whistle to it from an upstairs window, and the car would halt at once and wait for her, while she shut the window, put on her hat and cloak, went downstairs, found an umbrella, told the girl what to have for dinner, and came forth from the house. The previous passengers made little objection to such gallantry on the part of the car. They were wont to expect as much for themselves on like occasions. In good weather the mule pulled the car a mile and a little less than twenty minutes, unless the stops were too long. But when the trolley-car came, doing its mile and five minutes and better, it would wait for nobody. Nor could its passengers have endured such a thing, because the faster they were carried, the less time they had to spare. In the days before deathly contrivances hustled them through their lives, and when they had no telephones—another ancient vacancy profoundly responsible for leisure—they had time for everything—time to think, to talk, time to read, time to wait for a lady. They even had time to dance square dances, quadrilles, and lancers. They also danced the raquette, and scotishas, and polkas, and such whims as the Portland fancy. They pushed back the sliding doors between the parlour and the sitting-room, tacked down crash over the carpets, hired a few palms and green tubs, stationed three or four Italian musicians under the stairway in the front hall, and had great nights. But these people were gayest on New Year's Day. They made it a true festival, something no longer known. The women gathered to assist the hostess who kept open house, and the carefree men, dandified and perfumed, went about in sleighs or in carriages, and ponderous hacks going from open house to open house, leaving fantastic cards and fancy baskets as they entered each doorway, and emerging a little later more carefree than ever if the punch had been to their liking. It always was, and as the afternoon wore on, pedestrians saw great gesturing and waving of skin-tight lemon gloves, while ruinous fragments of song were dropped behind as the carriages rolled up and down the streets. Keeping open house was a merry custom. It has gone, like the all-day picnic in the woods, and like that prettiest of all vanished customs, the serenade. When a lively girl visited the town, she did not long go unserenaded, 
though a visitor was not indeed needed to excuse a serenade. Of a summer night, young men would bring an orchestra under a pretty girl's window, or it might be her father's or that of an ailing maiden aunt, and flute, harp, fiddle, cello, coronet, and bass-file would presently release to the dulcet stars such melodies as sing through You'll Remember Me, I Dreamt That I Dwelt in Marble Halls, Silver Threads Among the Gold, Kathleen Mavernine, or The Soldier's Farewell. They had other music to offer, too, for these were the happy days of Olivet and the Mascot, and The Chimes of Normandy, and Giraflet Girafla, and Fra Diavola. Better than that, these were the days of Pinafore, and the Pirates of Penzance, and of Patience. This last was needed in the Midland town, as elsewhere, for the aesthetic movement had reached thus far from London, and terrible things were being done to honest old furniture. Maidens sawed what-nots in two, and gilded the remains. They took the rockers from rocking-chairs, and gilded the inadequate legs. They gilded the easels that supported the crayon portraits of their deceased uncles. In the new spirit of art they sold old clocks for new, and threw wax flowers and wax fruit and the protecting glass domes out upon the trash-heap. They filled vases with peacock feathers or cat-tails or sumac or sunflowers, and set the vases upon mantelpieces and marble-topped tables. They embroidered daisies, which they called marguerites, and sunflowers and sumac and cat-tails and owls and peacock feathers upon plush screens and upon heavy cushions then strewed these cushions upon floors where fathers fell over them in the dark. In the teeth of sinful oratory the daughters went on embroidering. They embroidered daisies and sunflowers and sumac and cattails and owls and peacock feathers upon throws, which they had the courage to drape upon horsehair sofas. They painted owls and daisies and sunflowers and sumac and cattails and peacock feathers upon tambourines. They hung Chinese umbrellas of paper to the chandeliers. They nailed paper fans to the walls. They studied painting on China. These girls sang Tosti's new songs. They sometimes still practiced the old, genteel habit of lady-fainting, and were most charming of all when they drove forth, three or four in a basket phaeton, on a spring morning. Croquet and the mildest archery ever known were the sports of people still young and active enough for so much exertion. Middle age played euchre. There was a theatre next door to the Amberson Hotel, and when Edwin Booth came for a night everybody who could afford to buy a ticket was there, and all the hacks in town were hired. The Black Crook also filled the theatre, but the audience then was almost entirely of men who looked uneasy as they left for home when the final curtain fell upon the shocking girls dressed as fairies. But the theatre did not often do so well. The people of the town were still too thrifty. They were thrifty because they were the sons or grandsons of the early settlers who had opened the wilderness and had reached it from the east and the south, with wagons and axes and guns, but with no money at all. The pioneers were thrifty, or they would have perished. They had to store away food for the winter, or goods to trade for food, and they often feared they had not stored enough. They left traces of that fear in their sons and grandsons. In the minds of most of these, indeed, their thrift was next to their religion. To save, even for the sake of saving, was the earliest lesson and discipline. No matter how prosperous they were, they could not spend money either upon art or upon mere luxury and entertainment, without a sense of sin. Against so homespun a background, the magnificence of the Ambersons was as conspicuous as a brass band at a funeral. Major Amberson bought two hundred acres of land at the end of National Avenue, and through this tract he built broad streets and cross streets, paved them with cedar block, and curbed them with stone. He set up fountains here and there, where the streets intersected, and at symmetrical intervals placed cast-iron statues painted white, with their titles clear upon the pedestals, Minerva, 
Mercury, Hercules, Venus, Gladiator, Emperor Augustus, Fisher Boy, Staghound, Mastiff, Greyhound, Fawn, Antelope, Wounded Doe, and Wounded Lion. Most of the forest trees had been left to flourish still, and at some distance, or by moonlight, the place was in truth beautiful. But the ardent citizen loving to see his city grow wanted neither distance nor moonlight. He had not seen Versailles, but standing before the fountain of Neptune and Amberson Edition, at bright noon, and quoting the favorite comparison of the local newspapers, he declared Versailles outdone. All this art showed a profit from the start, for the lots sold well, and there was something like a rush to build in the new edition. Its main thoroughfare, an oblique continuation of National Avenue, was called Amberson Boulevard, and here, at the juncture of the new boulevard and the avenue, Major Amberson reserved four acres for himself, and built his new house, the Amberson Mansion, of course. This house was the pride of the town. Faced with stone as far back as the dining-room windows, it was a house of arches and turrets and girdling stone porches. It had the first porte-cochere seen in that town. There was a central front hall with a great black walnut stairway, and open to a green glass skylight called the Dome, three stories above the ground floor. A ballroom occupied most of the third story, and at one end of it was a carved walnut gallery for the musicians. Citizens told strangers that the cost of all this black walnut and wood-carving was sixty thousand dollars. Sixty thousand dollars for the woodwork alone, yes, sir, and hardwood floors all over the house. Turkish rugs and no carpets at all except a Brussels carpet in the front parlor. I hear they call it the reception room. Hot and cold water upstairs and down, and stationary washstands in every last bedroom in the place. There's sideboards built right into the house and goes all the way across one end of the dining-room. It isn't walnut. It's solid mahogany. Not veneering. Solid mahogany. Well, sir, I presume the President of the United States would be tickled to swap the White House for the new Amberson Mansion, if the Major would give him the chance. But by the almighty dollar, you bet your sweet life the Major wouldn't. The visitor to the town was certain to receive further enlightenment, for there was one form of entertainment never omitted. He was always patriotically taken for a little drive around our city, even if his host had to hire a hack, and the climax of the display was the Amberson Mansion. Look at that greenhouse they've put up there in the side-yard, the escort would continue. And look at that brick stable. Most folks would think the stable plenty big enough and good enough to live in. It's got running water and four rooms upstairs for two hired men and one of em's family to live in. They keep one hired man loafing in the house, and they got a married hired man out in the stable, and his wife does the washing. They got four box stalls for four horses, and they keep a coupé, and some new kinds of fancy rigs you never saw the beat of. Carts, they call two of em. Way up in the air they are, too high for me. I guess they got every new kind of fancy rig in there that's been invented. And harness! Well, everybody in town can tell when Ambersons are out driving after dark by the jingle. This town never did see so much style as Ambersons are putting on these days, and I guess it's going to be expensive because a lot of other folks will try to keep up with them. The Major's wife and the daughter's been to Europe, and my wife tells me since they got back they make tea there every afternoon around five o'clock and drink it. Seems to me it would go against a person's stomach just before supper like that, and anyway tea isn't fit for much, not unless you're sick or something. My wife says Ambersons don't make lettuce salad the way other people do. They don't chop it up with sugar and vinegar at all. They pour olive oil on it with their vinegar, and they have it separate, not along with the rest of the meal. And they eat these olives, too. Green things they are, something like a hard plum, but a friend of mine told me they taste a good deal like a bad hickory nut. My wife says she's going to buy some. you got to eat nine, and then you get to like them, she says. 
Well, I wouldn't eat nine bad hickory nuts to get to like them, and I'm going to leave these olives alone. Kind of a woman's dish anyway, I suspect, but most everybody'll be making a stagger to worm through nine of em now that the Ambersons have brought em to town. Yes, sir, the rest'll eat em, whether they get sick or not. Looks to me like some people in this city'd be willing to go crazy if they thought that would help em to be as high-toned as the Ambersons. Old Alec Minifer, he's about the closest old codger we got. He come into my office the other day, and he pretty near had a stroke telling me about his daughter Fanny. Seems Miss Isabel Amberson's got some kind of a dog, they call it a St. Bernard, and Fanny was bound to have one too. Well, old Alec told her he didn't like dogs except rat terriers, because a rat terrier cleans up the mice, but she kept on at him, and finally he said all right she could have one. Then, by George, she says Amberson's bought their dog, and you can't get one without paying for it. They cost from fifty to a hundred dollars up. Old Alec wanted to know if I ever heard of anybody buying a dog before, because, of course, even a Newfoundland or a setter you can usually get somebody to give you one. He says he saw some sense in paying a nigger a dime or even a quarter to drown a dog for you. But to pay out fifty dollars and maybe more? Well, sir, he liked to choke himself to death right there in my office. Of course, everybody realizes that Major Amberson is a fine businessman, but what with throwing money around for dogs and every witch and what? Some think all this style is bound to break him up if his family don't quit. One citizen, having thus discoursed to a visitor, came to a thoughtful pause, and then added, "'Does seem pretty much like squandering, yet, when you see that dog out walking with this Miss Isabel, he seems worth the money. What does she look like?' "'Well, sir,' said the citizen, "'she's not more than just about eighteen or maybe nineteen years old, and I don't know as I know just how to put it, but she's kind of a delightful-looking young lady.' End of chapter 1